Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast with Doug Winters. Today is episode 84, and I could not be more thrilled than to bring you one of the premier off-premise caterers in New York and now in Philly, the head of Newman's Kitchen, Paul Newman. The one thing that Paul says that really kills me as soon as this pandemic is over and we can all start going back to having amazing parties, there's not a single day that I will not repeat this. He says, we strive for perfection and settle for excellence. I'm stitching it on a pillow and, and we'll repeat that before every job that I do from now on, that we strive for perfection and settle for excellence. So without further ado, here is my new friend, Paul Newman. Hey. How you doing, my friend? I feel like we've been here before. <laughs> I know. You're, you actually, your picture's better than last time, I think. For some reason, you were on the phone last time. Ah, okay. I had an unstable connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is much better. Yeah, no, this is great. I, I, unfortunately, none of my life stories have changed, so it's all going to be the same. <laughs> okay, so I am delighted to have the owner of Newman's Kitchen, Paul Newman. Hi, Paul. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. In all honesty... We've done this before, and it was totally my fault. My computer ate my Zoom recording, so we, he was generous enough to spend like an hour and a half with me last week, and then I have to call him two days later and say, I've done everything I could to find it, and it's gone. Yeah, so, and my big fear now is that I'm not going to be as smart or as funny as I was telling the exact same stories again. Of course. No, but it'll be more charming. Right. There you go. Let me just give a little bit of background, then you fill it all in, okay? Oh. You went to art school to study fine art. Mm -hmm. Then you worked at the Rosedale Fish Market. Correct. Which was owned by your father and your grandfather. Correct. You moved out on your own, had a store for 15 years on 3rd Avenue. Right. Moved onto Christie Street mm -hmm. from 1996 to 2016. Built a 18,000-square-foot commissary in Long Island City starting in 16. Uh, we moved in in April of 16. Okay. 2018, I think you corrected me last time, 17, opened in Philly. Correct. And you are the very definition of off-premise caterer. You do not own a building. You're not... Right. We don't... Uh, On-premise is where caterer has a facility and everything is done right there. We are the definition of off-premise, meaning everything we do is like a military operation. We pack it up. We unload, we cook it, and then we pack it up and leave. Three hours before the event, it's as if we were never there. And two hours after the event, hopefully, it's as if we were never there. Now, this could be in any place. This could be in a museum. This could be in a... Exactly. Typically, it's, it's museums. It's venues that are what we call open venues where multiple caterers can work. New York Public Library, Museum of the City of New York. Philadelphia, we're now the exclusive caterer at the National Museum of Jewish American History or American Jewish History. Let me ask you one very important question. Yeah. Am I in the museum and where's my plaque? You know, your plaque is being engraved right now. And I wanted to make sure we got the spelling right. So that's why. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Yeah. You are also connected with a bunch of smaller places in New York. I think I counted 16 or something. Could be. Paley Center, a 92nd Street Y, Brooklyn Cruise Terminal, Go Studios, Flow Spaces, Glass Houses. Yeah, very nice. Uh, the Dimena? The, the Dimena Center. Uh, Dimena, okay. Yeah, the Dimena Center is actually a studio for recording orchestral live music of any kind, but it's they have a room that's designed. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful room, but the sound baffles are done in such a way that they can sort of make the room as if it's larger or smaller. I don't really know how they do it, but they have done original cast recordings for many, many Broadway shows, 30, 40, 50 musicians plus vocalists. And it's like this gorgeous, it's like being inside this gorgeous wooden box with lots of slats, horizontal slats. And I think within those slats, 
they can regulate the the depth and therefore change the acoustic quality of the room. That is incredible. It's fascinating. So do they have parties in there? We've done events for them, and we've done events for third parties there. So we have brought clients there to do cocktail parties. The room holds probably pre-COVID. Everything we're saying is pre-COVID. 100, 150 for cocktails, probably 40 or 50 for seated dinner. If memory serves, it's West 47th Street. It's downstairs. Mm-hmm. I think maybe 20, 25-foot ceilings. Uh, just, a, you know, one of the things I love about New York, you drive by buildings and they look the same. And then if you go into a building for some reason, it's like, OMG, like, I can't believe that this space exists. There's a building at 809 UN Plaza called IIE, Institute of International Education. And they, I think they award the Fulbright Scholarships. They have a room upstairs overlooking the United Nations. And if memory serves, it was designed by Alvar Alto. It's this treasure box. It's another one of these spaces where you walk in and you go, how come I didn't know about this? And, <laughs> and we've done a lot of events. And there's, a, I think, as I recall, there's gorgeous blue glazed tile on the ante room. And then inside, again, this gorgeous sort of cathedral of wood. And quick, interesting story, Doug, you didn't hear the first time. They have these Alvar Alto light fixtures. Oliver Alto. If I have it correct, it's Alvar Alto, A-A-L-T-O. And I was going in for a meeting one day at IIE and I'm walking in and I see in a dumpster one of these light fixtures and I looked at it and I thought this is not supposed to get thrown out this is a work of art this shouldn't be here this shouldn't be here and I forget whether I took it out of the dumpster or I pointed it out and I said I mean I don't care what you do in here that light fixture I mean I'd love to grab it but I'm not grabbing it right I'm I'm doing it right. That's worth something. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there was a story, and I'm, I'm digressing, but in any case, the life fixture got saved. And uh, uh, but I, this is this is like how New York degrades accidentally when things mm-hmm. get thrown out, and you want to be part of that. No, 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 no! Don't throw that away. I have a funny, quick, hopefully quick story. So a friend of mine is in the lighting business, very successful lighting provider. And he was walking by a Radio City Music Hall one day. Mm-hmm. And they're removing all the seats from Radio City and throwing them into dumpsters. That's a lot. It's like, what, 5,000? 5,000 seats, right. Okay. So he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, we're throwing them away. We're, we're putting in new seats. He said, stop. And, <laughs> and, and they said, what do you mean stop? He said, I'll buy the seats. So he went up the chain and bought all the seats and put them in like 10 tractor trailers. So these were the Radio City seats that had been there for 50 or 60 years. Wow. They bought all the seats and then started refurbishing them and selling them as Radio City Music Hall seats. Okay? Because they're famous. I think they did that with Yankee Stadium. Exactly. Those were the wooden seats. These are, so he refurbished them. And I mean, I think he made a lot of money on it, as it turns out. And I, as if memory serves, Jerry Tishman from Tishman's Fire, who knew this person from the lighting business, said, I'll let you have the seats or sell you the seats, but you have to refurbish like 20 of them for me, for my viewing room, for free. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. He did the <laughs> oh, for his private? For his private screening room. But this is how, again, how New York, and, you know, they're just seats. It's just upholstery, right? But it's yeah, like Yankee but It's history. Yeah. Anyway, listen, the conversation's completely different than last time, right? We didn't even... Listen, I want all these episodes to be casual conversations, giving great information from the best people in the business. And the fact that I'm a musician, you're an artist, we can speak as peers. We've both been in the business for a while, so I can come at it from... That's right. right. A lot of people that I've interviewed, if I've done 82 interviews in the past 20, seven of them went to NYU. Oh, Interesting. Five of them were acting majors. Yeah. Like people like Christina Matucci from David Bean. Sure. You know, pursuing a career on Broadway. And how many people can do that? You know, it's like trying to be center field of the Yankees, you know? Uh, it's true. And, you know, you bring up something very interesting, which is 
how many of us are in careers for which we trained at college or which we thought we would do? And the catering industry is filled with change of career people, right? People who said, I always love food. I got sick of practicing X, Y, and Z, doing this, and now I'm doing food. And so there's so many of us. I'm an art major, fine art major. Um, I'm in the food business. I've I've said in the last few years, I'm not really in the food business anymore. I'm in the people business because I'm not touching food. I'm influencing food. But the thing I'm really doing is influencing people to make food and to direct this orchestra of people making food, selling food, presenting food, making the trays and platters to present. You're like, this is a creative endeavor. And I, along with so many people who work at Newman's Kitchen and in the industry, started somewhere else and found our way to this because it resonated with us. It was important to us. And it felt like something we wanted to do not like something we had to do or were trained. So let's, let's, let's back up. My mother was an amateur painter, loved to paint. She had an artistic streak. My father was a businessman, sold fish. His father sold fish. His father-in-law was a chef. So there was a history of food. There was a kind of history of art coming from the other direction. I grew up interested in art, not that interested in fish and business, went to art school, well, three steps of school. My first year of college, University of Alaska, Fairbanks. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> University of Alaska, uh, 1972, August, I get to Alaska. I'm like, okay, I'm a New York kid. I said, well, let me have some adventure. And I think Alaska came from my mother. I think she okay. was always a dream of hers to see Alaska. Seriously, I don't know how I got there. So I'm University of Alaska for a year, and it's cold. And um, <laughs> I decided I wanted to come back to the lower 48 and go to another school. And I had studied civil engineering in Alaska. And I was okay at it. I was okay at math. I sucked at calculus. Um, <laughs> but I'm a hands-on guy, right? I'm a builder. I'm a doer. So mm-hmm. I ended up at Goddard College in Vermont. And, oh, okay, and, yeah. and I like to joke that I went to Vermont for the warm weather from Alaska. <laughs> So I got to Goddard because they had a design build program there. And and basically they were building the school. David Sellers, an architect, was there and he was building. And I got there just as they ran out of money to build. So I know. So I get to Goddard to build, and it's like, no, just make models and and we'll talk about building. And I and then I took a semester of glass blowing at Goddard. And uh, there was a little wizard of a man named Bill Happel, a little, little tiny creature, very energetic, red hair, beard. And, you know, glass blowing is very kinetic. It's, it's about movement. And it's, it's, it's almost like dance in some ways. You've got to manipulate this ball of glass on the end of a rod and make it do what you want it to do. And it's not easy. So it's very physical. And it, and I fell in love with glass blowing. So now I'm at Goddard and I said, the glass blowing studio at Goddard was probably 15 feet by 20 feet. I mean, it was a shack off <laughs> campus. Awesome. I think they kept it there in case it burned down. It wouldn't burn down the whole campus. So I realized if I really want to study glass blowing, I better go somewhere where there's a bigger program. So I went to, yeah. I looked up Alfred University, has a glass blowing program. But it, where my sister went. Is that true? And and the comedian Robert yeah, Klein. No, I was there after Robert Klein. He's a little older, yeah. but he had made a big name for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by the time I got there, he was you know he was one of Alfred's claim. I think he was there in the sixties. I was there in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I so I applied to Alfred for glass blowing, and remember this is now my third year of college, and they said, yeah, you can come in, but you have to do freshman and sophomore foundation. And now freshman and sophomore foundation in art school is basically, you know, it's like Painting. building blocks. It's, it's, you build your art career by doing these foundational years. And, and I, so mm-hmm. now I'm a junior I'm in my third year of college. And the only way I could get to blow glass at Alfred was to become a freshman. And oh. now it's a state school. So the money wasn't a big deal. My parents were right. fine with it, right. but you would have thought they would have said, Hey, how many years are you going to be in college again? 
Oh, so now college, instead of being four years, is, is at least six. It's, it's looking like six, right? Right. So I get the freshman foundation as a junior, and I, I math. Oh, so you must have really wanted to do it if, if you're willing to give up that time. When you're a kid, you know, like, usually anxious to move on. Well, it, was, <laughs> it was the place, it was the place, it, it had the best equipment. It didn't have the best teachers, but it had a great <laughs> glass studio. So I fell in love. One of the things about glass blowers is, we like stuff, right? We like machinery and we like equipment. It's funny. It's one of the few art thing, art practices. Or what's the word? Art media. Yeah, that I that I never really knew. I mean, you just see it on TV occasionally. Right. And it, so now yeah. I'm, I'm a freshman. I'm not even going to get the glass for two more years, right? Because and and I have to take. But I've I've fulfilled most of my academic requirements my math and my sciences and stuff. So oh, I don't have the same, yeah, I really don't have the same requirements as a typical freshman. Um, but I, I do freshman foundation and then halfway through sophomore foundation, I did what's called challenging out. So I basically went from a second semester, second semester sophomore to second semester junior. So I was able to oh, do the, condense the four years into three years. But in any case, so now I'm blowing glass at Alfred. And I discovered that I don't really like it that much, uh, <laughs> but I really like making stuff. Like I really like assemblage and wood and metal. And so I'm welding and I'm working in the wood shop. And, and that's when I sort of developed my current repertoire of skills. So most of what I do now in art, which I do on the weekends is around right. assemblage and found objects and a little bit of sort of primitive woodworking, um, and I, and I say that because I, I couldn't build a finished cabinet. You wouldn't want me to build you a finished cabinet. Right. But you wouldn't mind me making a piece of art that's sort of, you know, kind of. Yeah. And and doing a finished cabinet would bore the hell out of you. Anyway. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's just, yeah, you probably could better than someone else, but. Not know, as good so as the not, no And my welding, no, but what, my welding is what okay, started me. But it's not like you wouldn't want me to weld your car together, right? <laughs> exactly. But, uh, so well, no, but what fascinated me in what I wrote in the email was that I what I love is that you don't look at art as something like when I said a bunch of people you know you tried to be musical theater you tr you want it to be I don't know Sutton Foster Nathan Lane you know people who really make a living you know yeah, yeah. Matthew Broderick how many people can you even name that do right and it's just a tough business so. And then they move on to something because they didn't succeed at that. And they kind of maybe will go to, you know, right. they'll sing karaoke at a right. bar or something, but that's the closest they come to it again. What You still practice. Yeah. You still, your, your art. Your stu you still practice your art. I still make like stuff. Like when you sit on weekends, this doesn't, it doesn't mean like, you know, like there's, a, there's an expression, you know, uh, weekend warrior, right. like when you're, you're in a local softball league or you play pickup basketball at the Y. Right, or, or yeah, yeah, amateur theater. Exactly. No, I yeah. mean, but, no, but I'm not even talking yeah. about that. I'm talking a real casual. Yeah. Really yeah. casual. Like, you pick up, you, you know, you go play, like people our grandparents or parents' age would go play handball, you know, in Brooklyn, you know, that kind of thing. Another you know. thing I do, or did. No. I was a four, I love four-wheel handball. It's still my favorite sport. Racquetball is as close as I come That's to right. that, and I love that. Such a great sport. I, I, I like to say that four-wheel handball is racquetball for Neanderthals, right? It's, it's <laughs> racquetball for people who uh, don't. Oh, I thought you said, I thought you were going to say like four-wheel handball. Four-wheel four -wheel racquetball is like handball for wimps no 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 <laughs> like you need a racket no, yeah no well it's sort of it, maybe that's the flip side of it but the truth is yeah, yeah. if you're going to hit a ball with your hand as hard as you can and try to beat the crap out of an opponent and outmaneuver the opponent it's it's neanderthal it's very primitive um and it's yeah. and it really it gets down to it's the closest thing you're going to get to a boxing match without actually to boxing. I was just going to say boxing. Yeah, it's it's as close as you get to boxing without actually striking someone. And if you're really good at it, and you're playing someone really good, you can actually intentionally hit them in the back just to send them a message to say, you know what, I don't really like you. Um, you know, because that's like a really good pitcher, you know, hitting someone. It's a in the brush back. back. It's a brush back. Exactly. A brush back pitch. And the beauty yeah. of it is, is you're not disqualified. It's you know, it's not a point against you. It's yeah, it's just the two. And you get you get a welt on your back. You take a shower and you go. Maybe I won't stand there 
the next time. <laughs> Maybe I'll give him or her some room to make that shot because standing there. I don't want another welter. I'm going to be feeling like that. that for a couple of days. That's a yeah, No, but what I was very impressed by, because I do it too, so egocentrically, yeah, I yeah. feel like, all right, a kindred spirit, yeah. is that I still pursue, um, uh, you know, I still, I'm practicing Brahms and Chopin as if I'm preparing for a concert. Um, I love that, but that's, but yeah. that's, that's, I think that kind of feeds your brain. I remember reading about Einstein years yeah. ago that he was actually, he was a classical violinist. Yeah. yeah. And before, like in the morning, he'd spend an hour doing, you know, like Vivaldi, ex right. whatever exercises right. are on the violin for an hour right. before he started the math. And he said it sort of like trained his, it got his brain, it got him focused. Right. So it raises the question, so, Doug, what do we do to feed our souls? to feed our brains and feed our souls, right? To, to a much, much better way. Well, it. yeah. it's, it's, do we each have an activity or activities? I, I like to say when I go into my studio, I know I've had a good day when I've completely lost track of time, right? When three hours has passed like 15 minutes and mm -hmm. Karen comes and says, uh, want to go for lunch or what do you want to do for lunch? And it's 1130 or 12. And I got in the studio at seven, eight in the morning and I'm like, oh yeah, um, <laughs> let's do that. And, and that's when I know I was sort of, you know, they talk about in the zone, but where yeah. I'm, I'm so engaged in the dialogue with the material that I've lost track of time. And it's, that's, I, I hopefully, or there's an equivalent in music where you're just, you're in the flow, you're playing, you're lost. And, and I think that must be on some level very, very good for our souls and our brains and our health because mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're in an altered state in that moment. That's very funny that you should say that. And because yeah, that happens with my wife very, very often. I, whenever I'm working on something, I'll work in headphones. Right. Because you can hear, I don't know, you just you just feel like you're there. Um, even when I edit this conversation, I'll do it in headphones. Mm -hmm. um, and I could get lost in it. Maybe not, you know. But yeah, actually right. editing a podcast, because I do it so much right. now, is is really, be, like, it'll take me a week to get this out. Right. To, you know. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that I lose myself in it. Right. You know, I put the headphones in. And it's just literally me, my laptop, and I'm spending time with your voice. And mind you, I'm just looking at GarageBand, so I'm just looking at two MP3 waveforms. Right. But it's just me hearing what you're saying and just concentrating on it, wanting it to sound right. So if I go, uh, 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 I can literally cut out uh, 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 so that there's only one, right. uh, you know, literally to the millisecond. And it's like what, when I'm arranging music, you know, like I'll just right. go into like my own world. And yeah. it's that, I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. You know, I was, I was watching something. I must've been PBS because I learned something. Um, <laughs> the, the reason why orchestras need conductors, I never mm -hmm. realized that the musicians can't hear the music except for what's immediately around them. Like sure. what's so obvious to us in the audience was never obvious to me that if I'm playing a violin in an orchestra, I can't hear the woodwinds or the, right. the percussion. And like, of course, because I always thought that someone stands up there and conducts and like, really not, and it's like, for they're sure. not doing anything, right? right. Like nobody exactly. really needs them. And then I, yeah. then someone said, well, the musicians can't hear the music. I'm like, Duh. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, if you look at the, the book on to my right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a biography of Leonard yeah. Bernstein, my hero. Is um, he? Oh, yeah. Well, was, but. Why Bernstein I, as opposed to Sondheim or um, Tchaikovsky or why Bernstein? Bernstein because uh, he was the first American uh, to be conductor of a major symphony orchestra. Okay. He was the assistant conductor to a guy by the name of Dmitry Metropolis at such a young right. age, which is incredible to be an assistant, but 
the assistant usually doesn't go on. It's like the understudy right. to, you know, if you're if you're paying a million dollars to go see Lin Manuel, you know, you don't want somebody else. So uh, he got sick, and Bernstein goes on, and there's a very very famous article in the New York Times, front page of the New York Times, 25 year old wonderkind, you know, yeah. like. Leonard Bernstein, the first American to conduct a major symphony orchestra. And then a couple of years later, he got the job as the straight full musical director. So, and he was very athletic and he was handsome and he was like, kind of like the Mickey Mantle of classical music. And, and he was very, he seemed very accessible. I mean, to, to the average person, you know, and he would call himself Lenny, you know, and before this was, you know, uh, everyone. First of all, everyone had European names because they were all European. Right. Yeah. So he started. Uh, so that's why Bernstein, Got it. basically, because he was just very cool. Yeah. I mean, he was you know tall and thin, and he you know looked like an actor, right. and you know. Um, Definitely brought coolness to music. I mean, it could, you he know, did. He did. West Side Story. But a lot I of grew people's... up on West Side Story, right? I mean, that oh, was yeah, me I too. was nine, ten years. No, I wasn't even. So what was it? Sixty. When did it come? No, the original was like the the show is before our time. Yeah, I mean, the show is I think fifty, yeah, fifty something, yeah. fifty six. I was three, four years old. So yeah, the, movie, the musical, the movie was like sixty two, sixty three. Yeah, and I listened to that record. Oh, I must have listened to it hundreds of times. I knew every lyric. I knew yep. every, it was, it was what we did when, you know, we were jets and sharks in Flushing Queens. Yeah. Everybody knew it. Yeah. And it was, everybody it was, it. it was the soundtrack to my pre-bar mitzvah years, you know, to whatever my. Nobody left that movie without. Yeah. Even if you were eight, nine, 10, yeah. 15 or 30, you did not leave that room without yeah. the, without in the parking lot, jumping around, trying to dance, you know, like. Like one of the jets. Exactly, you know. exactly. And then we did it at summer camp, right? Oh, you're ready for this? Yeah, of course. We did it at summer camp. Um, and my line, that I still remember, cheese it, the cops. I think that was my line, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it's you one of the jets. Uh, who the heck knows what I was? Okay, who remembers? Like, you know, maybe I was eight, nine, ten years old, whatever. So, yeah. I, you know, I was in. But you still remember? Yeah, I still remember. I think I remember my line. Yeah. What camp was it? Uh, camp Lennox, Lee, Massachusetts. Okay. okay. Yeah. For all those people in the world, literally the last person I had on was from Dublin. <laughs> so, so you're from Queens. I'm from Valley Stream, Long Island, which is the first town in Nassau County past Queens. Okay. Uh, so we have similar, and we're the similar age. So one of the things that back in those days, it seemed like every Jewish kid, certainly, whether you were poor or, uh, I think the rich kids went to something something else. <laughs> but the re- just regular, lower middle class to middle class, whatever, you know, went to summer camps. Yeah. Like I went to a place, my brothers went to a place called Well Met, yeah. uh, which became really f- well known. I actually ended up going to the University of Vermont. This is the world's longest named camp. It was called the U- <laughs> It was the University of Vermont Summer Music Session for High School Students. So by the time I was 12 till 16, I think, it was it was basically a music student. It was a, it was like going to a mini Juilliard, yeah. and they get teachers from Juilliard to fly up for a week or to be take a limo. I don't know how you got to Burlington from yeah. This was so long ago that I remember going into a bakery and asking for a bagel, and they said, "What's that?" That's one of them. <laughs> you know? That's one of them Jewish bread donuts. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, so the, the fact that um, I'm impressed that you, as a human being, you know, I think we'd be good friends, the fact that you, that you, you do your, that you still pursue your art. Yeah. Not that you're trying to, you know, not that you do when you're, you know, I'm uh, not sure. you know in a good way, in the best yeah. possible way, feeding your soul. I'm, as I'm you not say. sure if I pursue my art or if my art pursues me. Um, it it's kind of feels... And I have to say, I've taken a hiatus in the last six months, partly because I have an inventory problem. Like I don't need to (laughs) I have too much. I don't need to make anything else that no one's going to buy. So until I find an outlet, it's kind of sapped my creativity. But 
the reality of it is for those who make or create or perform, um, chances are pretty good you're going to find a way to do it regardless of the circumstances. And yeah. I found when I was in an apartment in my early 30s, I built these massive wooden planes, right? They were kits, um, you know, balsa wood flying planes with oh, gasoline planes, engines. Planes. Yeah, airplanes, like fly oh planes. And, and that was my way to continue to assemble something, even if I wasn't making it from scratch. And inevitably, I found myself taking the extra pieces. There shouldn't have been any. Um, and kind of <laughs> making stuff out of those or taking the extra wood or buying extra materials just to kind of feed that sort of crazy, let me see what else I can do. You know, as an yeah. artist, one of my problems as a businessman is because my soul is that of an artist. And because of that, I like to do something once and then I don't really like to do the same thing again. I was just going to say, so making yeah. plates for 2,000 people. Yeah, well, that's okay. It's not the same as making right. plates for But one. running a business where you've got... So one of the lessons I've had about business is you better surround yourself with people who aren't like you because if you're all a bunch of artists, then all you're going to want to do is do something once and then the next time someone wants it, you're going to go, well, I forgot how I did that. I know that was yeah, an inspirational right. thing. When I cook at home... I'm a good amateur cook. I'm not a chef, um, right. but I'm good at putting food together. And um, as a result, if somebody really likes something, if somebody really likes something, I may not be able to do it again exactly the yeah. same way. I'll remember what I did in the process. Sort of. But it's yeah. not like I'm busy cooking and writing and cooking and writing and going, oh, now I have this new onion and caper relish that I'll be able to make two years from now. It's like, right, hey, right. it was... You're just doing it at the moment. Because so it's... one of the questions I've asked, and I've mentored high school students over the years, and one right. of the questions I like to ask when they say, I want to work in a kitchen or a bakery is, do you like classical music? What kind of music do you like? Do you like classical music? Do you like jazz? And... I tend to say those who are who are drawn to classical music might want to gravitate towards baking because to me baking is a lot like classical music it's it's really about structure and form and order and weighing things and being very precise to me cooking is much more like jazz where you're right. feeling your okay. way, you're dropping a chicken breast in a hot pan and you're observing it and you're touching it and you're, you know, it's not like I'm going to, I'm going to put it in the pan for a minute and 13 seconds and I know it'll be done. It may in <laughs> fact be a minute and 13 seconds, but what you're really doing is you're working with your hands, your eyes, and you're observing how things are changing. So a slightly thicker chicken breast is going to take just a little bit longer. So, to me, those who like classical music may, in fact, be better off gravitating towards something more structured like baking, where if you don't put in that amount of something, that recipe will not turn out. It just is not. It's interesting. Also, I was going to say a classical musician is more patient. Right. They're used to things taking a lot, right. taking time. Right. Taking, you know, in other words, like, like a pop. You know, or jazz right. thing, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the greatest, you know, right. you know, take any great jazz album, right. you know, and the songs are, if they're long, they're eight minutes, yeah. you know, uh, you take, as opposed to the average, you take a standard Mozart sym symphony right. and they're like, you know, yeah. 56, you know, 50 yeah. minutes, yeah. 45 minutes. Um, so the other day I was in Philadelphia and I was helping put some shelves together and I was cutting some wood. And I, the person I was working with, I wasn't sure if he had worked with a saw. It was just a simple circular saw, just cutting a four by eight pieces of masonite down. And I was running in my head what I was going to say to him about how to do this. And I realized that one of the most important senses when you're using your saw are your ears. Right. Because the saw is telling you 
when you're straight and when you deviate from straight, the saw is straining and it's, it's not just, you're not just feeling. Oh, wait head. a minute. That's really interesting. Now that you say it, cause you should, I'd, I'd love you to explain that. Cause I said, yeah, too quickly. Right. I don't, so, I, I just know that saw makes, makes a right. sound, but now that you say it, there are different sounds. Yeah. And, and so I realized how important hearing is to the use of tools. And I, and mm -hmm. because I work with power tools a lot, it was kind of this revelation of, yeah, I use my ears much more than I think. Obviously your eye, you, you draw sure. a straight line and then you're guiding the saw down that line. And you know, your the line thickness, maybe you're at the left side of the line, maybe you're at the right side of the line, maybe there's space, maybe there's not. But my point was, I realized how much, how much I was dependent on my ears and I wear earplugs when I'm using power tools. Um, Smart. So, but not to the extent that you can't hear, just to the extent right, that right, the right, sharpness right. of the sound is dull. Right. But I realized how, and, and it made me think back of all the time I spent in, in the shop and how much I pay attention to how things sound when I'm working. Because if that saw is telling you a lot, and if you think of when you listen to, for instance, a chainsaw working, right? You know, they're like, you know that, that when it gets deeper, it's struggling. And it's telling you, back off. You're going too fast. Oh, it's giving you. Yeah, it's, it's telling you. Literally talking you're to abusing. You. You're not using it well. And you're going to burn up the blade. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself, whatever. So it was just a revelation that one of the senses that I didn't think was as important as it is, is super critical. Um, and it makes me think that ah, you, you play violin, it's your ears, it's your eyes, it's your hands, it's this sense of touch. And it's probably also in your body, right? Your, your sort of body feels when you're in tune and when the instrument is tuned, there's just something. And it's, it's kind of the same with the power. So when you're in sync with the saw and the wood and you're safely set up, because one of the things that happens when you're cutting wood is as soon as you get through it, it something's falling somewhere, right? And <laughs> yeah. the fact of the matter is, if you don't plan for that fall, that piece of wood, it can kick up at you or fall off or hurt you. So yeah, yeah. Um, it was just, it was a revelation. And I've been doing, I've been working with power tools for almost 50 years. And it was the first time I realized how much I depend on my ears to inform me about if I'm being safe and how well I'm working. Well, that's also cool that you can do something for 50 years and, and be astonished that you're right. learning something new, Well, one of the, which is great. Well, what yeah. prompted it was I was thinking about how would I teach someone about how to do this safely. And I was going to say, uh, well, you have to look at it, but you have to listen. Listen to what the saw is telling you because it's probably, they're probably just going, you know, and like. Yeah, yeah, it's it's talking back. There's a dialogue. And if someone had told you that when you were 19, yeah. you might have said, eh, yeah, uh, it's exactly. just a teacher. It's exactly. Yeah. Um, could you describe off-premise catering? Uh, uh, so here's what I'm thinking. I, the, when I started this podcast two and a half years ago, I would, I would interview people and I would always say, like to Preston Bailey or to the people... Yeah. In um, uh, Harriet Rose Katz, you know, I'd say, please t tell me about the rest of what's going on because I only see success of a party means that there's a lot of people dancing on the dance floor and yeah. that it's not too loud right. so people don't have to cover their ears and there's no volume complaints. And those are the two main things that people are just having a great time. So, and on a good night, I will never leave the bandstand. And I say that to a lot of brides, right. just Right. that I say, uh, you know, and I'm not even as a selling point, but it's just who I am. It's just, I want to be in charge of, I'm, I want to be available to them. I want to be available to the major D. I want to be available, right? Okay, so I literally only see stuff from the bandstand. But I was not aware of like the placement of food on a plate, the amount of flowers on a table, the, the tablescape. I learned the word tablescape. I'd never heard the word. I didn't know what a charger was. Right. Yeah, I know, and I know. There's, there's, there's a lot. It's a, and lighting, and there, you know, the, some of the fancier uh, weddings or or, or mitzvahs or anything will replace the carpeting in the room. Literally, 
they'll replace the carpeting. They'll, re they'll put things up on the wall. They'll make structures. Um, yeah. Like Preston Bailey said that he will make a chuppah that's, you know, a, a work of art that someone will literally take home and put in their backyard or something. Right. But the point is that there's a whole world of stuff out there. So what I wanted to do with this podcast is that people listening to it who are saying, oh, yeah, I want to get married. I just, for example, I just got a call for someone getting, they said, somewhere in Connecticut, in my parents' backyard, we're going to have a tent, 150 people. And I, you know, so they need an off-premise caterer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. When, uh, let's say the... Because we're thinking, talking about classical music and art. So let's say the, the American Ballet Theater is, is celebrating some anniversary. Mm -hmm. They're having it in a, uh, at Avery Fisher Hall, or, right. which is now David Coke Hall. Um, um, it's not used as a, as a wedding venue. It's not used as a gala right. venue. Enter you. Right. So you have now this space... So for, so for the sake of this, because it is called the Wedding Wisdom Podcast, yes. um, and I know you do parties for 2,000 you know, corporate things, and I love doing corporate things. It's very exciting, and um, it's a whole different, it's a whole different right. ballgame. You know, there's, no, there's not mothers of the brides, right. and, you know, brides right. and grooms, it's, it's, but there are different people to make happy. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I would, like, back in the day, I don't even think it exists anymore, but I used to do a lot of parties with Ronnie Davis at Washington sure, Caters. Sure. That goes back who, a few weeks. Right? That's, yeah, a couple of weeks. And um, uh, he really started me out in New York. He introduced me to New York. And I must have, we must have done several hundred parties mm -hmm. together. And one of the places he would take me, two of, the, two of the, his, his favorite places were at, at the time were Roseland and the Puck Building. Yeah. The seventh floor of the puck building yeah, and the first yeah, floor yeah. of the puck building, two of them. And they were, so when you go to Rose, so for anybody that, so in other words, anybody listening, picture Cipriani used to be a bank, right? One of the, Didn't one of the Ciprianis used to be the stock market, literally the stock market? Uh, or, it could be, the Wall Street. Wall Street, maybe, Wall, yeah. yeah. And one of them used to be a bank. yeah. yeah. I, th I think I think I saw on your website you were, you have a place that used to be the I don't know the Dime Savings Bank or something like that I can't remember but you know like there's a lot of these right. places that have opened up especially over the last bunch of years like the New York Public Library yeah. you were telling me about um, I, I I just had on the podcast which I haven't even begun to edit yet uh, a planner named Peggy Cash who's and we were talking about, he's, he said, you know, dream places that he'd want to go. And we were talking about the New York Public Library. Yeah. And I had never played there. Right. And he said, keep something in mind. Yeah. The entrant, entry fee is a million dollars to go into the New York, to have an affair at the New York Public Library. I don't Library. know if that's quite true, but it, it could be. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm cutting this out because it might be completely yeah. wrong. But... The idea is that, all, you know, I used to do parties for Skadden Arps Law Firm and in and, and the whale room, you know, and yeah. years ago, you know, the guy who hired me used to say, I remember once, because the name, the number stuck in my head, because right. it was the, um, and he said it was $50,000 entry that's, fee that's just to right. walk in the that's door. Right. I, I think 50, before you do anything, it's it's a $50,000. Right. Oh, you $50,000 just to have, it's like basically a sponsorship fee to the it's a sponsorship, right. and if you have it in a museum, right. you you, you the, I, I think you would tell me this that they call it a a membership fee right, exactly. or a donation fee, right. Right? and there's probably all kinds of tax ramifications that people can write, write stuff off. Right. But be that as it may, let's just say someone says, "I want this great. Give me a really nice room that's just like the puck building right. that, that used to be used for model shoots during the week." Right. And then on weekends, yeah, I remember well, both the seventh floor and ground floor. Okay, so the question is, where do you come in? You, you, you have a blank room. Right. Well, the first thing we do is we ask the client 
what do you want two guests leaving the party to say about the party? What story do you want us to have helped you to tell at your wedding, at your gala? Ultimately, catering is all about being part of this sort of symphony of storytelling that includes Mm -hmm. the musicians and the florists and the lighting designers. We're all there to help someone, whether that someone is a couple or that someone is an organization or that someone is a business. They want to tell their story and communicate something to their audience. So the first art departure point in that conversation is what do you want people to say as they're going to co-check or getting in their car or their Uber or whatever, going home? What would be the ideal thing? And what made you think of that? Because it puts the end first, right? It's, it's first of all, we're all dealing with something very emotional. The thing I'm talking about when I get, am getting to the car is how long it took me to get my coat, right? Like this, this event was great, but co-check sucked. And, and I spent 20 minutes getting my coat and that's the last thing I remember. But kind of the evening was spoiled in a way. It can be. And so, yeah. look, we assume that we're going to get the service right. The food's going to get out on time. The plates are going to look beautiful. But ultimately, if that's in the service, we want to be acting in the service of the emotional goal of the host and the hosts of the event. And So what would be a standard answer? Um, I want to... Like if I asked you that question... If Karen and I are leaving a wedding, the thing we love to say about it is we felt included, we felt important, we felt the love of the family for each other and for us. You know, there's a, in a wedding, there's usually an inner circle and then everybody else, right? And if you're the everybody else, we, if we've done our job as the inner circle, we've brought you in. Our stories haven't been just about our little insular world in our romance. It's been about why you're in the room and why we're so happy you're with us. The weddings that we love the most where we're not part of the inner circle are the weddings where we go, they're such nice people. They they made us feel welcome. I felt like they understood. They brought us in and we so appreciated the storytelling they did that was important enough for them to not address it to us, but make sure we heard it. You know, what's worse than when the father of the bride, the father of the groom, they're telling these inside jokes and, and there's like chuckling from 20 or 40 people. And you're sitting there going, what was that? So we start with, what do you want those guests to say? And then we drill down into what's important to you. And, and one of the things we try to do, Doug, and this isn't, there's no answer to this. Food and service aren't always the top priority for a couple getting married, right? I'd right. like it to be in the top two or three. I'd like it to be number one. Yeah, so what are, what are the top three? Well, it can be music. It can be the photography. How did I look? And how are my pictures in the video, right? That's like, that can be right up there with flowers, decor, how prestigious is the venue? How prestigious is the band? You wouldn't hire your band to perform in a shack, right? right. Like you don't park right. your Bentley in right. a you know in a broken down garage. You want there to be a level where it all fits together. So mm-hmm. the food needs to match, the decor needs to match, the music, the photography. It all should be of a whole. So there isn't some thing that's sticking out. So you've got a forty piece band. And you've got 10 people on the dance floor. That's my nightmare. Yeah. So we're trying to say from a food and uh, charger presentation. I'm assuming that I couldn't be the only human being that didn't know what a charger was. Now we're saying, okay, what do you want people to say? What story do you want to convey? Where does food fit into that story? Is it part of your family history? Do you want us to bring together your two backgrounds? Do you have a favorite restaurant, a favorite cuisine? Do you have something you want to help reinforce the story. When I was working in the fish market, someone came in and said, can you make bouillabaisse? And I said, I can make bouillabaisse, but I can't make the bouillabaisse you remember from Marseille. (laughs) So if you want me to make bouillabaisse, I make a fabulous bouillabaisse, but I can't make the one you remember any more than I can make your grandmother's kugel 
where I can make the food you remember from your childhood <laughs> sure. because that's just not fair, right? Because that just wasn't food. That was this place and time in your life. So right. I want to make sure that you know that as good as my food can be, I can't replace the memory. So we then start to drill down on what's important to you in food and where do you want food to fit into your storytelling? The more boilerplate our food is, the less it costs. The more you say, I really want this cookie recipe from here, or I want you to duplicate this, or I'm Korean and my wife is Italian and I want you to do Korean-Italian fusion. Well, that's that opens the door for confusion, right? That opens the door for muddled messaging. And so we're trying to tease out between what they're telling us what they want and what we know we can produce or what's going to be effective. If someone says, we love incredibly spicy food, we just want to do, we want to do the most spicy food we can do at our wedding for the entree. <laughs> we will make you too and anyone you know wants this food we will make you the most incredibly spicy food and we will make the exact same food for everyone else and we're going to dial it back. And maybe what we'll do is we'll put on each table that thing that makes the food incredibly spicy and give people the option to go where you're going. Part of what we do is we have to interpret what someone wants and we have to make sure that a mass audience, in this case, 50, 100, 150, 200 people, longer than what, what you seat at a table at a restaurant. At a restaurant, you go, I'd like to have, I'll have this dish and, and you can tell the chef to really dial it up. But if you said, I'm having this and I want you to dial up the spiciness for everyone, it's like, no, 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 you don't order from me. So you're working your way out in. Right. What do you want people to say and how does food fit into that narrative and, and how important is food to you? And if it's not that important, we're never going to stop trying to make it better than you even want it. One of the things that we say to ourselves at the end of an event is if the client said that was the most incredible catered event, meal, whatever, we sit down afterwards to deconstruct our efforts and we say, well, that's a good start. We don't take their praise as the end, we take it as, well, that's great. And we try to say, what else could we have done? Not that we did anything wrong, but there's always room for us to improve. There's always room for us to get better at what we do. So we're working to a standard that we determine. There's nothing better than having the client praise us and say it was incredible, much better than the tasting. We're thrilled that they were thrilled. What did we leave on the table? What could we have done slightly better? How could we have cut the service time down by 10% or 20%? How could we have cleared the plates more effectively? Did you notice that a lot of string beans came back? A lot of haricot came back in the plates. What do you think, what, what message are we getting from the amount of food that came back? One of the things I do at a catered event is I look at the plates coming back because that's telling me how people voted. They voted for what were the portions too big? Was the dessert too rich? Look, desserts on events are very tricky because yeah. most of the time they're not getting eaten, no matter how good they are, no matter what you do, right? The first courses get eaten, the entrees get eaten, the desserts get pushed around. You've been at this thing for three, four, five hours. By the time you get to sit down for the first course, you've probably eaten your fill of hors d'oeuvres and station food. So you're actually consuming sort of twice your normal intake of food. And then you get dessert. And it's like, it's gorgeous and it's delicious, but I'm just going to have a bite, right? I just don't, I'm not eating that much. That's how I am anyway. I want to I want to yeah. know what it is and how good it is. Chances are I'm not eating the entire dessert. My point is we're judging what comes back and where people are telling us what they liked and what they didn't like by what's left on the plate. You know, it's it's funny because a lot of what I do as a musician is corporate events as well as what you do. And what this whole podcast is about is for 20 years, I did the Fresh Air Fund benefit at Tavern on the Grid. Yeah. Every year, like usually 12 to 1,500 people and a bunch of celebrities. And But no matter what the 
charity is or whatever the gala is, if you're going to have a silent auction, it's all about making money for a good cause. It could be for the American Cancer Society. It could be for a hospital. So that there's a story that has to be told from that. Oh, yeah. And look, at a gala, the desserts, by that time, they've raised their hand. They've made their donations. It's 930. They want to get out of Dodge. Right. They're ready to go home. That's always my job. I always think, all right, how long can I keep these people here? I'm booked till 11, but the main act is done at 9.30. This is the 20th gala that they're giving money to, and it's just another one on a Tuesday night. How soon can I get home? No, my goal is to say, all right, how long can I keep them partying? And that's right, and I think that's a great goal for you. This Philly Fights Cancer gala that we've done for three of the last four years, we didn't do it this year because it was canceled. Right. It's the dinner, the fundraising, the, the headliner, and then the after party was Maroon 5 or Earth, Wind & Fire. Oh, wow. That was the after party. So now these 2,000 people come back into the room where we had the cocktail hour, and there's a band set up to play for about an hour. And we've got dessert stations out now, and we're trying to keep the food interesting to keep people there the money's been raised, and this is just, this is the kiss to make him want to come back for next year, <laughs> exactly. right? And it's pretty incredible, but now you've lost a 1,000 people. Of the 2,000 people who are at the dinner, only a 1,000 are there, or 900, and the room doesn't really hold them anymore, so it's fine that most people left. But we're trying to make sure people had like an exceptionally great time. Okay, so we, I don't want to take up so much of your time. Just take people really quickly through loading trucks. You know what? Let's just make a one scenario. Let's say a tent wedding, someone's That's backyard. Right. So we're we're a we're a component of that, and we're collaborating with the event planner or whoever is in charge. We're not generally in charge of the overall operation, but we're responsible for letting them know what we need and how much of it we need. One of the tricks to successful event planning and catering in particular is creating redundant systems so that when things go wrong, it doesn't undermine your ability to do the party. So if you need two functional ovens, you may ask for three and you better test those ovens in advance and make sure that you're not tripping circuit breakers or that your coffee makers are not in the garage tripping circuit breakers. The way to make sure you succeed as a caterer is to make sure that whatever can go wrong, there's a plan B for it. Oh, so not even involving the food. The system so you can deliver the food, right? Yeah. One of the early weddings we did, this is early 80s, in someone's house, and they wanted to do kulibiak of salmon. And a kulibiak is a Russian dish. It's salmon and spinach and crepes and mushrooms and eggs and rice all layered up in this beautiful assemblage in puff pastry. It's one of the worst ideas you could ever have. (laughs) Like, I would never do it today. Because it's so complex. It's complex and it has chances to fail, especially in a field of it, right? Yeah. So this is really way before we had this mindset of redundancy and preparation for anything to go wrong. So... It was, let's say, 150 people, Mm -hmm. and we made 180 of these little individual kulibiak. We hadn't tested the ovens, and we turned the ovens on, and there are flames just licking out of these ovens. Let's just say it's not pretty, right? (laughs) It's not where you want to cook food. Yeah. Let's say we put the first 50 kulibiak in to bake, and we burn them to a crisp. They're black. And so now, whatever margin of error we had, we made 200 for 150 people. We burned up our margin of error in the very first run. We've just gone 0 for 50, and now we've got to go 150 for 150. Let's just say they weren't all up to the standards we would have liked. There were many lessons coming out of it. Is one, know your equipment. Two, say no to a client when their idea is a really bad one. And just know your limitations. Know your environment. You talk about on-premise and off-premise. Yeah. An on-premise caterer is working from the same kitchen over and over. They can get it down to a science, but you set it to 350, it's a 350. So how do you pull it off? You know what you need. You over plan. So you're not living on the knife edge. One of the things that's very 
interesting about weddings in people's homes is getting things over lawns. Because very often you can't pull that truck up to that tent. Right. You got to pull that truck up to the driveway. And then you better have some dollies with big wheels on them. Yeah. So you're not tearing up the lawn or else you're having waiters hand carry 40 pound crates of dishes which is exhausting and time-consuming. So what you could load in in New York, a 200-person wedding you could load in at the New York Public Library in an hour or two might take you six hours or eight hours to load in the same thing across a lawn. And trust me, the parents have brought that lawn to a state of grace. Look, we try for perfection. We accept excellence. We all qualify our clients as our clients qualify us, Mm -hmm. right? We know with our experience, Doug, that at some point, it may make more sense to walk away from a client whose expectations we're never going to be able to meet, nor will anyone else. We did a tasting for a client. It was a wedding and it was very short notice. And they brought their nephew with them. And their nephew was like 22 years old, just out of college. During the tasting, the nephew was making comments like, well, one of my carrots was a little undercooked and another one of my carrots was a little overcooked. And it was just inappropriate. And there had been other things at the tasting that were troubling to me. And I basically said, you really have to find someone else. I called the florist and I said, I just want to let you know, I'm letting them know that I, I can't do their wedding. And she said, why not? And I said, well, you were there. You saw what happened. And she said, yeah, I noticed it, but I didn't realize and it, and I called the, the florist a week after the wedding. I said, how did it go? And she said, oh, it was a disaster. They I, heard, I, I was going to predict you were going to say that. Yeah. I mean, there was no one who was going to make them happy. Um, and there's no level of attention you can provide. You know, we, we in the earlier conversation, we had talked about serve-out times. Yes. And how... We balance out the number of chefs in the kitchen to get the serve-out time to be 12 to 14 minutes. Well, if someone said, I, I have 200 people at my wedding and I want the food served in one minute, you could do that. But all the food could be provided, produced simultaneously. Well, if someone wants to pay for that, right, 100 waiters and 100 chefs for 200 guests, you could have the food served simultaneously right. for 200 people. But at some point, if that's what perfection is to them, then we will scale to that. But most of the time, the normal client is saying, yeah, 10 minutes sounds about right. 12 minutes is two minutes too long. 14 minutes is four minutes too long. Eight minutes is better. You know, all we're trying to do now is balance out the cost of the event with the expectation of what they consider to be appropriate service. It's funny, the person who started me in this business, his name was Richard Melman. Was he from Chicago? Yes. Yeah. And it was for the Playboy Club. Let us entertain you? Let us entertain you. Gave me my first job in the business. Is that true? Yeah. And he gave me the greatest advice that I'll never forget the rest of my life. He said, the key to great service is serve hot food hot and cold food cold. Mm -hmm. And if you as the band leader keep people on the dance floor for two, three extra minutes, they come back and they'll have a plate of cold soup instead of this right. gorgeous sorbet on top of... Right. Everything has to work together. Right. But he really said, hot food, hot, and cold food, cold. And that's true. And no one blames you, the band right. leader, for playing right. three minutes too long, right? It's the caterer, the host, It's the food's cold. And if your service is too slow and people are sitting around for so long, they'll say, oh, why is the band taking such a long break? That's right. We're interdependent and responsible for the experience. And, you know, we talk about people leaving the party. Oh, my God. Can you believe how long it took to serve dinner? Or the dinner plate was there 15 minutes after I finished. Or the band took too long a break. Yeah. It's funny what people get focused on, but they will focus on something that had an emotional effect on their experience. Right? Yeah. Well, this was a pleasure for me, Doug. I really enjoyed it again. And for me as well. This was absolutely terrific. I I agree. All right. Thank you, my friend. It's a pleasure. You bet. Thanks so much. Paul Newman. What a true gentleman. 
Today is December 16th. It's the seventh day of Hanukkah and a week before Christmas. And it's a very exciting time in New York. Matter of fact, today is supposed to be the first snowstorm of the season. You can find me at Doug Winters Inc. on Instagram. You can find Paul at Newman's Kitchen, N-E-U-M-A-N-S Kitchen. Continue to stay strong, stay safe, wear masks. And I promise we will get through this together. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. Once again, thanks so much for being a part of the Wedding Wisdom Podcast community. And I love you. And I appreciate you all. Bye-bye now.